Hey everyone, Eric here. Before we get to our discussion with Ndili Musuku from the African Tech Roundup podcast, I want to remind you about becoming a China Africa Project subscriber. This allows you unlimited access to all of our content, including the news feed, exclusive insights and analysis, as well as the incredible China Africa Experts Network that is growing by the day. It's an incredible resource that we're so proud of. And you'll also get our daily email newsletter, which is by far the most comprehensive digest of China Africa news that you'll find anywhere. To find out more, visit ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. And be sure to use the promo code podcast for a special offer of one month free with your annual subscription. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are privileged every week to talk to some of the brightest, smartest, most intelligent people who are in the China-Africa space, but rarely do we get celebrities. <laughs> Today, we have a bona fide celebrity, and I am just absolutely giddy. I'm actually a little bit nervous, to be honest with you. Uh, I listen to Andile Musuku uh, on his African Tech Roundup podcast all the time. And uh, we're going to talk tech today. And it's one of the topics that you and I, at the beginning of the year, when we gave our year in review, year in preview show that we do every year, we said that tech is going to be one of the transformative issues in the China-Africa relationship. Uh, we have not done justice to that topic, given the profound changes that have gone on in the past year, mostly in the private sector. Let me put a couple bullet points out there for people to consider. Just over the past couple weeks, Transon Holdings, which is the parent company of Techno, and if you live in Africa, boy, you know exactly what Techno is. 54% market share of the smartphone market, somewhere in the 20s to 30% share of the feature phone market. It is the biggest player by far. Their uh, first couple days of trading went up 64% on the idea that uh, people are going to buy a lot of techno phones. We're seeing the arrival of Alibaba into, into Africa, both in consumer services, but also in the charity realm with Jack Ma. Huawei, of course, we can't talk about Africa without talking about Huawei, both because it is the really the essential company in the Chinese, I'm sorry, in the African tech scene in terms of that hardware infrastructure, but also because of the politics just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Huawei announced that its Mate 30 Pro will not launch in South Africa because it does not have the Google Android OS. So there is the evidence that U.S. sanctions are taking a hit and African consumers are paying a price for it. So, Kobus, I could go on for the next 30 minutes just talking about the data points on the increasing influence of Chinese tech in Africa. But it is hard to overstate the growing importance of this sector. Yes, it's it's massive. Um, in the first place, Africa is is I think legitimately can be called the only real uh, emerging market that's left for tech um, in the world. You know, it's some Africans are, are buying their first phones now. Um, it's a very obviously a very young continent, so so that adds no, you know 
other levels of, of interest in tech. Um, but then it's also important because tech is increasingly entwined with a whole bunch of other issues. Like, as you point out, geopolitics is one, surveillance is another one. Um, so we, we really, as uh, you know, as, as the, the, the world tries to figure out you know what? How we're going to be living for the rest of the century? How we're going to be dealing with climate change? How we're dealing with all of these other massive problems, um, including issues like, like for example, African migration to Europe. Tech plays a role in all of those, um, and African governments are increasingly under a lot of pressure to try and get their populations online as quick as possible, which has its own set of of related complicated issues involved. So, so it really touches all aspects of life in Africa. So, we've been looking for the right person who can speak to all of these issues, both from the role of the Chinese in Africa in the tech space, but also looking at how the the African tech space is changing. And again, we're using the word Africa as a very, very poor shorthand here, because in tech, just like in everything else, there is no Africa. The scene of what's happening in Cape Town is so different than what's going on in Nairobi and in Ethiopia and in Addis and in Accra. There's a great tech scene. So it varies widely. We are using that shorthand Africa. But again, I just want to put a disclaimer out there that that does not do it justice. We found the right guy, as I said, giddily at the top of the show. And Dile, he's the executive producer of the African Tech Roundup podcast. If you are not listening to that podcast, it's absolutely essential listening. Go and put it onto your subscribe list right now. He covers Africa's emerging tech and innovation ecosystems. He also produces storytelling podcasts for the BBC World Service Outlook program. He's a fantastic radio broadcaster and podcaster, and I am just beside myself with joy that you're on the show. A very good afternoon to you, Andile. Good afternoon to you both, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I just, I couldn't help like chuckling to myself as you sort of introed me at the top of the program as a celebrity. I'm like, my gosh. You in the podcasting world, there you pass. are. Take I it. I cannot take let it. that pass. That is just, Cheap just praise. too much. <laughs> Cheap praise. Go for it. Um, normally, Andile, we have an agenda with the show. We have questions that we kind of prepare and there's a flow to it. We're not going to do it this way. We're going to kind of put everything into a grab bag and I'm just going to pick random questions out and we're going to go in different directions because there is simply too much to cover in the short time that we have. So uh, let me and just sorry, start with... Allow me to interrupt you by saying, firstly, um, best show on this topic in the world period is you guys. Ah, well, that's um, and it's, so it really is that's my so privilege lovely. to be Thank here. You. And um, I've learned so much about... Um, about China, but also, you know, China with reference to the continent and vice versa uh, from the work you guys do. So big up to you both. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you. So flattery will get you everywhere. (laughs) So that is (laughs) is very, very appreciated. So we'll pass the mutual admiration society. We'll now move on. Uh, Thank you again. And so let's, let's get started with Huawei. I mean, that is the only place for us to go. News came out a couple of weeks ago that, again, Huawei had to cancel its uh, it's Mate 30 Pro. Now that by itself, the the Huawei phone. Huawei's not a big player in the in the smartphone space in Africa. It was about six or seven percent market share. Nowhere near what Techno and Transcend's phones are. Uh, but it is indicative of the, the the very fragile role that Africa has stuck in between the United States and China. Now Africa has made its case very very clear that it is sticking with Huawei. Uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, the South African president, he called the Americans jealous of Huawei. And then Kenya's ICT minister came out and told the Americans that said, listen, we will make our own decisions about our 
ICT backbone and what we're going to do. Buzz off, Washington. And the rest of the continent has has kind of stuck with it. You wrote a piece called Huawei or the Highway. Um, so let's kind of start with a discussion on how do you see the role of Huawei in the African tech ecosystem? And again, it's a consumer brand. It's an infrastructure brand. It's a data pipeline brand. It's a cloud storage brand. It's a lot of different things in Africa. Give us your take on Huawei in Africa. Africa's relationship with Huawei and indeed America's uh, much more, you know, <laughs> less than friendly relationship with Huawei, a lot of people, including myself, see as a proxy for the formation of a new quote unquote third world as China and America you know, duke it out for ideological and commercial dominance, where third world was, was typically, you know, an issue of who sided with America and its allies vis-a-vis -vis the communism issue. Um, I see a new third world forming around who gets to dictate how the world should be run, what constitutes fairness, what constitutes a more equal spread of wealth, perhaps, or what constitutes the brand of capitalism that should prevail. And tied up in Huawei as a proxy is, is all these issues. And we're hearing African nations, not least the more sort of, you know, powerful economies like South Africa, indeed Nigeria, and even Ethiopia, come out saying, well, we need to think about what's best for initially our sort of national citizens, and then more broadly, what's good for Africa corporately, before we think about whatever ideological issues a country like the US might have, you know, with with China by proxy through Huawei. And, I, and I'm seeing a lot of the sort of pragmatic considerations that are coming to the fore on the continent around Huawei, centering around these issues, and far less about whether or not China has the moral authority to assert world dominance, uh, you know, as a superpower and all these other things that I think tend to dominate narratives in the U.S. So, you know, obviously the U.S., one of the one of the reasons that the U.S. government gives for, for all of these restrictions on Huawei is concerns about possible, you know, Chinese government surveillance. Um, and African governments, I think, have, have generally downplayed this issue and when when pressed on it like around the case around the surveillance um, of the African Union headquarters uh, then the, pre the then president of, of the of the AU Paul Kagame was saying well you know like lots of people spy on us um, you know and and I think you know research has also borne out that many Western companies are just as involved in in surveillance issues as Chinese companies might be. Um, how worried are you about surveillance and cybersecurity as an issue in Africa? Um, and how big a role do you assign China in, in this worry? My pragmatic view is informed by perspectives my wife is actually sort of brought to the fore in our personal relationship. She's an incredibly intelligent health economist and uh, I suppose coder in her own right. And, and so far less entrenched in the sort of day-to-day -day tech and innovation ecosystem issues as I am. So I, I think that gives her this arm's length perspective that I don't have because my head is in the game and I'm in the trenches with everyone in this space. And so to borrow from her thinking, which is increasingly becoming my thinking, the horse is bolted on surveillance and digital privacy and, and those issues. And frankly, I find it quite disingenuous, uh, disingenuous of any sort of global northern interest asserting that China's doing anything they aren't already doing. They would have a lot of us believe that we can trust them with those activities in a way we can't trust China. 
which one, I don't entirely consider to be true. And I think we have a lot of examples of how, whether it's developing nations run by perceptively less than savory leaders on the African continent and other parts of the developing world, or, you know, well-PR'd developed nations with like, quote-unquote, untainted UN credentials. I think everyone has had a chance in the limelight as far as showing how readily in the name of, you know, keeping us safe, in the name of advancing national interest, they're willing to spy on us and use our data for, in ways that we might not be aware of. So from that standpoint, it's not that I'm not worried or um, naive to the, to the reality of how China's dominance in this space is becoming an increasing reality. It's just I am pragmatic to the point of, I don't know, I don't want to say I'm, I'm, I'm despairing or apathetic, but I am, I am somewhat pragmatic to the point of not seeing this as, as, as big an issue as certain sort of lobbyists in, 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 U, in the U.S. Might, might purport. Let me try and push back here a little bit on, on what you're saying there, because I agree with you 100% that U.S. European companies, or actually, no, no, let me rephrase that. U.S. companies are not to be trusted. Uh, Facebook has burned through all credibility on trust. And I, I really don't think that many people actually believe the company anymore when they say they protect your data. And uh, I, I, you know, I read a book by Shuzana uh, Zoboff, Shuzana Zoboff, uh, uh, Surveillance Capitalism. Shuzana. So, yeah. yeah, from NYU. I'm not saying her name right. And you walk away from that book feeling like, holy crap. I mean, like, you, they've taken everything from you. So I use DuckDuckGo now. I, I do as <laughs> much as possible to get away from, to not give Google, you know, a full, complete picture of me. Because they, too, are basically just taking my data and, and, and stealing it. Now, in Europe, they have GDPR, which is a data privacy regime. You have the right to be forgotten. California now is introducing that. There are data protection laws, believe it or not, even in China. Uh, Japan, I think, is coming out with some data protection laws. And so it raises the issue of governance in Africa, where non-digital governance is, in many countries, a problem much less these very, very confusing state-of-the-art issues that uh, require a lot of sophistication in the policymaking arena, which a lot of African governments simply don't have. That, in my case, and I'd like to present it to you on this, does it leave Africans vulnerable now to the Chinese in terms of sucking up all of that data, to the Americans and, and, and to the Europeans. And there are real-world consequences to this, as we saw in the 2016 election in the U.S. with Donald Trump in terms of using access to Facebook data to sway elections. So there, this is not an academic exercise. This is when other people own your data, you lose some of your sovereignty. So talk to us a little bit about, does that concern you at all? Or is that also part of what you're saying is, absolutely? you know, and as we go into this era of artificial intelligence, facial recognition, which is now coming into, into Africa in a very big way, Huawei and their smart cities program, there are Huawei cameras now in dozens of African countries picking up data. Where does it go? Who owns it? What's your thought on that? I agree wholeheartedly with you, and I'm really glad that you sort of, you know, at the top of the show, you you reminded uh, everyone listening that Africa isn't one big place. And what I like to remind people that at the top of my show, or as frequently as I can on on the podcast I present for, for African Tech Roundup, is that, you know, oversimplification is the enemy. I say that to say, I feel a lot of ways all at the same time about many different issues. So am I worried? Yes. Am I concerned? Yes. 
Am I frustrated? Yes. Do I buy into all the sort of lazy explanations for why I should be worried or why I should be concerned or how I should sort of channel my activism? Should I decide to sort of act on my, on my feelings? No. So I'll put, I'll put it to you in a much more pedestrian fashion. If anyone visits haveibeenpawned.com, which uh, in pawn spelled P-W-N-E-D.com, it's a, it's a cool resource that allows you to sort of plug in any, you know, email address you've ever had or indeed are currently using to determine whether or not, you know, your personal details via that email address has been sort of compromised in any major data breach known to the people who run that site. And when I put in some of my email addresses, and I did this some years ago, I did, you know, I put in some of the, you know, my email addresses, including my Yahoo one, I found that my Yahoo address, which I no longer use, had been compromised in two data breaches, the LinkedIn one and certainly the Yahoo one. Just a couple of days ago, about 10 days ago, I got an email from a group that is spearheading a class action suit against Yahoo, seeking to claim damages for the data that, you know, was compromised in the Yahoo breach, which, you know, some of us might all recall from, you know, several years ago, which was at the time one of the most diabolical breaches of the day. And I think we're long past that since, you know, it's breach after breach at this point. What was interesting is reading through that document in the midst of like this really long breakdown of how you should get involved and how you can opt out if you're not interested and sort of pursue suits of your own if you're not interested in, in, in joining the class action is the fact that this only applies to people who were affected in Europe and the US. Why? Because as you so mentioned, GDPR, you know, protects consumers in, in Europe and they're definitely sort of data protection or data privacy laws that protect U.S. citizens. And this is true for, for, for much of the developed world, right? That is not so for the vast majority of the African continent. Of course, South Africa, I think, being in the forefront of sort of trying to induct new policies that, that protect the everyday online consumer or online user in ways that perhaps haven't been done before, but precious little else many other places in the world. I say all that to say I can't help but feel some kind of way when I consider all the advances in sort of financial technology that are being sold to the world as bringing Africa online or sort of advancing financial inclusion and how I have personally seen how those activities are taxing Africans and compromising their digital future in ways they don't even realize in the moment. And, and all that to say, there is no doubt that China is taking advantage of the wild, wild west dynamic that is the emerging digital and innovation wave on the African continent. There's the ease with which you can do business here if you're willing to sort of bend a few rules and or if you can thrive in an environment where perhaps other people who are bound by perhaps more stringent legal codes in other parts of the world simply cannot do what you can do. And I think China and Chinese interests, like Huawei and other companies, are experiencing a boon on the continent as a result. And in the process, we as African citizens are being taxed in ways that we will only perhaps wake up to many, many years from now when, we, when we're completely disintermediated from our data and, and consequently its potential to generate commercial value. But that's all happening at the same time, Eric. None of these things is independent of the other. It's this massive web of reality that we have to navigate and wherever we can sort of assert our personal power as you have in, in protecting our data and ensuring that we're not being 
unduly taken for drives we'd rather not be on in directions we, we, we don't control. But at the same time, there's a pragmatic reality here that, you know, it isn't down to the U.S. and China. In other words, the two ideological choices here in terms of countries that want to advance themselves, it's not as cut and dried and as, you know, the U.S. and its allies and China. And China's the bad choice. It really isn't that simple. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. I want to move our, our conversation a little bit to, to a different area of tech. Um, when I was in at TCAD recently, um, one of the, the the kind of buzzing topics there was e-commerce. Everyone was going on about you know the the importance of moving e-commerce forward in Africa. That Africa is, has all of this untapped potential. You know, not only as a market, but that e-commerce could could solve a whole bunch of other problems. Um, you know, like even make it easier for African small producers to to get to a global market and so. On. And so on, and you know, kind of underlying all of that discussion was this uh, acknowledgement that that Chinese e-commerce companies are moving very rapidly in Africa, like more rapidly than some of their competitors. Can you give us an idea of like where Chinese e-commerce is sitting in in Africa in the African e-commerce sector, and like you know, kind of roughly where are we in its evolution? The notion of e-commerce, I think, for a lot of people, is stuck in the idea of. E-commerce a la Amazon, e-commerce a la eBay, e-commerce um, a la jump onto a website, find something you want to buy, pop in your details, and by some miracle of you know the 21st century, a day or so or even less later, someone's knocking at your door with the stuff you bought, right? And that's definitely a key feature of how e-commerce quote-unquote works and what I think constitutes e-commerce for a lot of people in, in the developed world. That's not to say that version of e-commerce does not exist and isn't growing on the African continent. But I think what was uh, a massive miscalculation on the part of uh, both founders and investors in the space, um, call it maybe six, seven years ago, was this was just going to be the next big thing. And it took for granted a lot of the realities, uh, street level you know, realities of the various African markets, you know, this trend had to sort of take on in order for it to become mainstream. And the reality is, at the most basic level, at the most basic consumer behavioral level, Africans generally and, you know, specific African markets display wonderfully nuanced attitudes and habits, you know, around purchasing behavior, around how household purchasing decisions are made, around how companies, even in the sort of enterprise space, make you know, buying decisions. And so it goes. At the most basic level, so many assumptions, poor assumptions or under-researched assumptions or lazy assumptions were made about e-commerce in Africa that didn't sufficiently take that into account. And then at the next sort of level of consciousness around this was just the ground level or infrastructural realities around what it takes for an Amazon to work anywhere in the world, an eBay to work anywhere in the world. Or a Jumia. Up until recently, frankly, we have and, and, and some other people have been lone voices in the wilderness decrying this sort of oversimplification. And now, you know, I was part of team Jumia is not African, not because 
of course, I was, I was rubbed up the wrong way because, you know, of the claims non-African founders of the company were making about how African they were. But that, that bugged me far less than the PR disaster I knew would ensue if Jumia didn't live up to the potential they had sold the world. And by my humble estimation, at the time they listed on the New York Stock Exchange, I wasn't alone in sort of predicting without that much scientific application of my mind that this wasn't going to work as well as they were selling. And the reason I was hashtag Jumia is not African isn't nearly as much about, you know, defend brand Africa as much as I was trying to alert the world that if we bought into that story, we'd have to buy into the downfall should it come. And unfortunately, the downfall is pretty much here. You know, the idea of what e-commerce is in the minds of people who, who are backing that story and in the minds of people who understand or have to live it out, living on the continent, is two vastly different things, especially when you think about the everyday African, which, frankly, neither I nor Quibus are, you know, from a, from a sort of, you know, income level. And so from that standpoint, it's like the Chinese seem to understand or have done more, more homework in one, understanding the nuances of sort of consumer behavior in various African markets. And they have done far less of a sort of uh, we own African e-commerce situation relative to other interests from the global north who've come here claiming they are now at the sort of uh, head of this, of this trend. Well, let me put a different perspective on that, on that same topic, because I, I'm glad you brought up the issue of the fact that e-commerce in certain countries means very different things than it does in other countries. So in the U.S., where, for example, we still use a lot of cash, and if we don't use cash, we're using credit cards. Uh, but mobile payments, for the most part, have not really taken off. Uh, in Europe, to some extent, it's a little bit better, but there's a lot of cash and cards still. In China, you don't use anything other than WeChat Pay or Alipay, period, end of story. And what's so interesting, and I think why it's applicable to Africa, is because it's taken about 25% of the country that was unbanked and give them the opportunity for uh, mobile payments. And in Africa, I think this is where the Chinese model is e-commerce is not a consumer-related shopping thing. E-commerce is your everyday transactions for everything that you do. Micropayments are everywhere in your daily life. So it's not just as in the Jumia context. And by the way, for those of you not familiar with Jumia, it's the Nigerian, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's predominantly West African Nigerian, started by Rocket Internet out of Germany, that created the whole chaos and the controversy over whether or not it was legitimately African. They sold this African story. They went to the New York Stock Exchange to raise money. First major listing of an African tech company on the NYSE. Lots of hype. And then it came crashing down. But in part, it's because they ran into, as you talked about, the logistical issue of the last mile delivery. And in many parts of the world, the developing world, and here in Southeast Asia where I'm at, Lazada and Alibaba are running into the same problem, that delivering a good is not the same as it is in the U.S. or Europe where that last mile is super easy, comparatively speaking. So this is where the Chinese model comes into, in, into focus a little bit more, that mobile payments uh, are very, very well adapted for developing countries, for the unbanked. And we're starting to see it in East Africa with M-Pesa and across the continent. There's a lot of desire for people, particularly in the bottom end of the pyramid, to have access 
to the to that mobile payment systems. When we look at WeChat and Alipay and what they've been able to do in China, do you see that coming into Africa the same way where it's about a story of micropayments for everything that you do, getting on the minibus, buying a piece of bread, even the smallest amount of payment, not a shopping delivery that comes with a book or a movie or something like that? So incidentally, when I think of successful sort of digital money deployments on the continent, sort of live deployments on the continent, I think of countries like Zimbabwe and Ethiopia, which incidentally are run pretty much the way China's run in many respects. And I say this carefully in that um, these are not open markets by any stretch of the imagination. Um, There seems to be a very clear appreciation that the digitization of money and the economic implications of mobile money and other innovations in the space, fintech in general, has a direct and close link with geopolitics, economics, etc. And I think when you when you look at EcoCash in Zimbabwe, or when you look at the digital money players in Ethiopia, um, you see the, the way they, they interact with like the political dispensation in those countries mirror the way sort of Alipay and, and WeChat interact with, you know, the Chinese government. You know, at a very basic level, I hadn't thought of it this way until you said it, there might be a lot more in common with that dynamic in China and many African countries than there might be, you know, the dynamic between sort of Google Pay or Apple Pay and the U.S. government. Okay. So one of the upsides of living in a, you know, in a, in a dictatorship is, well, you get mobile payments. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> um, I, I would stop sort of calling those countries dictatorship or dictatorship run. Maybe not dictatorships, but autocracies or less democratic countries. You know, you may not get the civil rights, but you get the mobile pay. Listen, the debate around what constitutes democracy or a healthy democracy at that is also a vibrant debate that's happening um, on the African continent. I'm all I'm all for it. You know, I, I obviously have very specific ideas of when democratic or even, you know, I suppose human rights are... Are, are trampled in any given context, in any given country, including the US or China or wherever. But I will say that, you know, part of what makes, you know, covering the digital in- innovation sort of emergence journey Africa's on so fascinating is because it is definitely a proxy for, you know, social economics, geopolitics. And I think what, what sort of Ethiopia countries like even Rwanda or, you know, to some degree Kenya, but certainly Zimbabwe demonstrate is that, this idea that let's create an agnostic sense that if we were to just, you know, use technology to open up citizen access to to finance, this financial inclusion would usher in this whole new world of freedom and democratic progress. I know a lot of policymakers that push back against that notion because they see that as an argument in favor of America's brand of partner with us, you know, over sort of partner with China or whoever. So, this that's even itself a very very nuanced discussion but the other side of this issue i think is the idea that you know even prior to sort of being on the ground and deploying technologies that have worked in china or technologies that have worked in europe or america and trying to sort of find you know do a copy and paste in africa before that step i think china has been better than most powerful nations of the world trying to crack the, you know, the African, you know, commercial opportunity are coming here and, and figuring it out and not assuming that they know what to do before they get here. And I think Transion, it, it's like a classic example of that. Like if you had, if you had met some of the, the people running the business when it first launched on the continent uh, early on, you would never have imagined that it would one day be positioned to be one of the 
the biggest sort of tech players on the continent, you know, the attitude, the posture of a business like Transient has always been, we sense at a sort of macro level that there's a huge opportunity on the continent. We are not going to make too many assumptions of, of the nature of that opportunity and how to exploit it. But we are going to commit long term to figuring it out. And that's not typically the attitude of a lot of big tech that comes from Silicon Valley or, via, or, or from Europe. Typically, when, when you think Google or Facebook or any of these, you typically see a, almost like a neo-colonial style deployment of resources. And I say this carefully because I don't mean this ideologically. I just mean there's like home base decides to send these amazing scouts with resources and a big master plan for how they're going to exploit this. And I have firsthand insight into what this looks like because my co-host on the African Tech Roundup is former client partner of, of Facebook Africa. And he was the second sort of major hire, Facebook hired on the continent. But even though five stories he's told me, it's quite clear that strategic decisions are made far from African shores. And locals are typically the last to the table in terms of trying to help you know, inform that vision, but also trying to implement it. And China hasn't worked quite that way. And as much as they bring their own people very often, they typically embed themselves for a very long time, work in stealth for many, many years. And overnight, so it seems, a company like Transient becomes one of the largest Android, if not the largest Android smartphone uh, distributor and creator on the continent, but also easily the the most prolific music streaming service on the continent. And people are like, how did this even happen? If you live on the continent and you understand some of the nuances I'm describing, you totally get it. That's such a so interesting that you that you mention uh, music streaming. The um, you know I, I was struck by a how successful Boomplay has been the the service that, that that's embedded on on transient phones, um, and then also struck by how slow the rest of the world has been to 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 you know to jump on this on this emerging trend, especially because African music itself has been exploding. I mean, obviously, African music, African music has always been an extremely rich field. Um, but over the last while, you know, like African, African pop stars have been everywhere. They're really, they, you know, they're doing duets with Beyonce. They, you know, they, they, they're like playing the Versace show. You know, it's, 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 they're, they're, they're very, very hip. Um, and yet, you know, a, a company that isn't particularly hip and a country that isn't particularly at the forefront of, of, you know, cutting edge pop culture in lots of ways or not, not as it's seen in Africa anyway, um, has us really kind of moved in and, and really you know, taken over from from the likes of Spotify. Um, do you see, uh, you know, kind of Western competitors like adding, like throwing more resources and trying to kind of catch up with them? Or, do, you know, kind of how, how do you see the music streaming economy in Africa play out over the next while? The music streaming economy on the continent as framed by the global north is this is what's cool because it's become cool over here, right? So case in point, um, the Beyonce... Lion King, you know, accompanying soundtrack album, which, you know, famously features some big names from from Africa's sort of, I'm going to get this wrong, the kids are going to know I'm, I'm so not with it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, Afri African pop, pop stars have been featured on Beyonce's latest album. And it's sort of like, well, Africa's finally here. And it's like, I think the difference between sort of Boomplay's approach to music streaming and frankly, being entrenched and becoming an integral cultivator of, of music scenes in various geographies is their attitude has not been, this is hot because 
you know, this is huge in China. You know, this is hot. This is hot period because it's hot in Africa, right? And that's typically not the the, the posture an Apple Music or even a Google Music or a, a Spotify take. Typically, they they want to maintain you know, their place in the world as the world's tastemaker, which is a legitimate sort of strategic positioning to take. But also their models are very heavily weighted in trying to identify the most valuable listener groups in the world and monetize those groups, right? And so I see the success of Boomplay as being a five to 10 year commitment that obviously isn't starting today. In trying to track where Africa's listeners are going to be as Africa becomes richer, as hopefully the middle class grows, as the cost of African ears and eyes, you know, from an advertiser's perspective grows, you know, Boomplay isn't playing for the now. It's sort of like, let's get in now. Let's deliver what these consumers need, what these artists need, what these sort of creative ecosystems need. Let's solve for that, even if it doesn't make a ton of business sense, it doesn't deliver growth that will that will please shareholders or but let's do what we know needs to happen to position us as dominant players and frankly, friends of the ecosystem in many years to come. And I'd point to like an Mpesa as sort of Vodafone's very, very successful play at that sort of model. I consider Mpesa actually one of the the most successful one of the most successful foreign aid projects to the continent ever, not only because it's rooted in in money that wasn't earmarked for massive commercial gain on the continent. It was earmarked as sort of a financial inclusion initiative initially, but it was backed by real money that had like skin in the game and a genuine genuine upside potential if the, if the idea worked, and that would be Vodafone. But there was a lot of care taken up front to ensure that when the story did break as this massive global success for for digital money or you know financial inclusion or you know technological advancement on the continent when the when the story broke it would break as a decidedly kenyan story which i think has been the most profound success of impesa to date and i think that sort of kernel of wisdom and strategic savvy is really what's at play at some at a place like Transient um, with all their mobile phone brands and their foray in, into streaming. And if you look at it holistically, a really sound platform play that should serve them well. Well, let's pick up on that conversation about the platform play. I was reading just last week about how Facebook's new cryptocurrency Libra uh, may have some problems coming into Africa, not because Facebook isn't popular in Africa. As you know, it's hugely popular, but because the ecosystem, the platform that now 54, 55% of all the smartphones on the continent run on, which Libra would need to use, uh, is controlled by Techno or Transin. And they may want to partner with WeChat, Alipay, or somebody else, or even M-Pesa, but not necessarily Facebook. And so it raises this question that if Techno and Transin have such a vast control of so much of the smartphone space that is growing, and they're building great phones that people seem to really, really like. Uh, they've, they're dominant in music now. They're going into other services. Um, will this ultimately create the walled garden that Apple has and that others have in Africa that may or may not be best for consumers? I sincerely doubt it. African policymakers, in my experience, I mean, they have many failings and there's a, there's a lack of, the ad, of sort of adequate levels of understanding or technical grasp of the issues and consequences of decisions that are made. But 
Um, the one thing I will say for many policymakers I've met in, in, in uh, across the continent is it is not lost on them the disadvantage to their own citizens and more broadly to the African continent should they sort of allow a single dominant player in any given space, including financial services, right? So, you know, so let, let me, since you, you, you referenced Libra, let me, let me, let me, let me take you back to, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's visits on the African continent and some of his talking points when he was here. That, that visit was net positive for the African continent in terms of sort of alerting the world that one, we're alive and we're alive with possibility. But the reason it rubbed me up the wrong way and why consequently Jack Ma's visit to the continent um, some months later and subsequent visits to the continent months later typically rubbed me up the right way is because Mark Zuckerberg's take on on during his visit was listen we're all here for you know the right every human being has to have access to the internet we we're all here for the straight line as he sold it uh, i'm not quoting here but i'm i'm paraphrasing the straight line between ensuring that everyone has a right to internet use and how that is just as important as an education or water or healthcare or whatever else and how we're committed as um as Facebook to ensuring that, you know, we promote democracy and all these other good things through ensuring that every person here has access to, to the internet and it's, and it's life changing potential and hence free basics, you know? <laughs> so, so what, what really frustrates, by the way, free basics for those, I just, let me just stop you. Sorry to yeah. interrupt you just to yeah. free basics is a very, very limited slice of the internet really anchored around Facebook and it's extremely controversial in India and in Africa because, of course, it doesn't give you the full internet. It gives you a light version of the internet with Facebook at the center. And a lot of people don't actually agree with that. Facebook light. And, and they had the goal to call it internet.org at the time. I mean, they since, they since changed the name because they even realized that it was just not working to call it, to call it internet.org. And so... So I suppose I raised this because I, I wasn't a lone voice at the time sort of decrying Mark Zuckerberg's very clear, disingenuous self-interest in trying to, to sell Facebook's boldest player dominating the African landscape as some favor they were doing for, you know, to advance sort of human, the human race, one sort of African at a time. And so in time, that groundswell of opinion achieved critical mass. And, you know, I think policymakers in most African countries have since done the right thing and ensured that Facebook can never position as the, the lone or sole arbiter to, of the internet to a growing population of people who are coming to the internet for the first time or indeed starting to become commercially active on the internet for the first time. So the reason I bring that up, linking it back to your, your, your referencing of Libra, is I see Libra as Facebook's attempt to achieve world domination a la, you know, free basics through a pain point that many African countries and certainly many countries in the world, even the developed ones, have to admit is a friction that needs to be alleviated if we're to truly achieve or exploit all the benefits of technology or being on a connected planet. And that's definitely, you know, finance and fintech. And, and Facebook sees itself as a much friendlier, more entry-level version of what the world could use to achieve what, you know, what proponents of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies claim the blockchain could deliver to the world. But I see, you know, Facebook and Co's attempt as the most audacious sort of mainstream attempt to 
to achieve that means. And I mean, to the question you asked initially, does Transian or do any other sort of Chinese companies or dare I say companies from anywhere in the world have the potential to create walled gardens that potentially have the pie solely to themselves? I don't believe, you know, African policymakers are so ill-equipped to see something like that coming and and prevent it altogether. It might happen in in small in small pieces here and there and perhaps for a while. But that's not something that I expect to see anytime soon, um, not with Libra, not with Tranchion or anyone else, frankly. Well, that's a perfect, positive, upbeat, optimistic way to end our discussion. I'm really a little bit disappointed, though, because I have another hour of questions to ask you. We've really <laughs> only touched the surface of it. There is so much to discuss, uh, but it is. I don't believe in podcasts that go beyond an hour. <laughs> so that's cool. I just that's don't cool think it's me. healthy. And so we're going to wrap this up before under an hour. But we do hope that you'll be able to come back to us. Everybody, if you are not listening to Andile's uh, African Tech Roundup. Again, you got to go out. You just heard for the past hour, he's one of the smartest guys out there in African tech in terms of just bringing together all the voices. And he takes, I'm going to flatter you again here, but uh, you you have this very kind of humble way of interviewing people. And you really allow the guests to kind of express themselves and to bring their different points of view to it. And I think that to me is just, that's what we need more of. And so congratulations on that. If people really want kind. to follow Thank you, you yeah, it's just that is the, the the God's honest truth there. If people want to follow you and stay in touch with you, what's the best way they can reach you? Well, follow African Tech Roundup at African Roundup on Twitter and on Instagram. You can follow me personally at Masugu Andile. That's my name and surname spelt backwards. And of course, visit africantechroundup.com. You'll be quickly spurted into our world and uh, you know invited to join our newsletter and have direct access to me via that newsletter, uh, via email. So please do the thing and visit africantechroundup.com. That's very, very cool. And we'll put all the links in our show notes so you don't have to write any of that down. Awesome. Uh, but, so we'll have that for you. So hopefully a lot of our listeners who are interested, not only in China-Africa tech, but African tech in general, uh, will be able to stay in touch. And Dile, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us. We really look forward to having you back again soon. The pleasure's been mine, truly, guys. Keep the the, the good work up. And it's not just the podcast, it's the resources you have on your site. Um, you guys are truly doing um, an incredible service. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> throwing all those compliments back at you. Thanks for having me. Kobus, I don't even know where to begin. There were so many different points that we touched on, and yet at the same time, there's so much that we didn't get to, we didn't have time to get to. The The thing that I wanted to kind of talk to him about, and we're going to have him back in a few months, this will be a regular feature on our show to talk more about tech, and Indile is just by far the best guy to do that with, is this question of soft power. And it goes back to an anecdote that I had the, the last time I was on the continent when I met some some young teenagers, and I said, what do you guys think of of China. And they kind of looked at me a little bit weird. I mean, like, what's the white guy asking me about China? But, you know, they kind of went with it. And they gave me this really fascinating answer where they said, you know, they took out their phone and it was a Huawei phone. And he said, you know, China's great. And then they talked about how they love Boomplay, StarTimes, Techno, Huawei, all of the Chinese brands. And they were seeing the world through technology, which of course is what young people do. And I think it, for a a, a new generation of teenagers in Africa who are interacting with Chinese tech first and foremost, this is affecting how they view the country as a whole. And one of the reasons why the U.S. entreaties 
to Africa about Huawei maybe falling flat is because it just doesn't make good politics for African leaders to go down that road because they know what people think about Chinese tech. They love it. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, that soft power play, I think, is really interesting to explore as well. I think it's really important. Um, I think it also, it also, you know, one has to understand, I think particularly, and I think this is difficult, I think, for, for Westerners to understand, is that uh, the entire, entire experience of, of, of uh, you know, Africa's entire tech experience has been one of exclusion. You know, like I, I, was, I was speaking to an American audience a, a while ago and I said that, you know, for me, so frequently I remember over many, many years, and it still happens now, you know, when you want to, when I want to, for some reason, want to watch something like a clip from Saturday Night Live, for example, and that, that thing coming up like, this content is not available in your region. You know, that has been Africa's entire experience with, with kind of first world tech, you know, has been this content is not available in your region. Um, you know, like it, and it goes back all the way to like DVD zones, you know, to all of these different ways that, that it just is impossible to to get to the content that you, that you already know that you want. And the fact that China is, is play, is coming into that space and just like saying, yeah, no, music streaming, fine, we'll provide it. This, we provide it. No problem. You know, that, that itself is, such a powerful thing that I think that someone who hasn't, who's, who's grown up in the center of the world, someone who grew up in the US, for example, um, you know, with, with full access to everything they ever wanted media-wise, can, can never imagine that. They, they, they can never imagine, you know, where your default position is one of exclusion. Um, and, you know, China is changing that on, on, on a daily basis in, in, in Africa. And that is invaluable, you know, it, as soft power, as hard power, you know, as commercial power. It, it, it plays on all of those different platforms at once. Ironically, you're talking about exclusion. Uh, certainly the Chinese, they know what, you know, not having access to content is like, given that they live behind a giant, you know, walled off internet. So not that a lot of Chinese people are necessarily looking over the firewall and saying, I want that. There isn't a huge demand for things like Facebook and YouTube, but certainly among a small percentage of the population, there is that sense of exclusion and difficulties that they have to encounter given the massive restrictions that they have as well. Listen, this China-Africa tech scene is one that is going to be, I think, one of the pillars of the China-Africa relationship. And you ignore this side of the relationship at your peril. It touches absolutely every part of the relationship from the economy to social services to politics to its international relations. It is complex. It is fast moving. It's private sector led in many cases. Uh, but at the same time, the, the Chinese government is there behind the scenes with a lot of loans, Star Times, Techno, uh, Huawei, all benefited from their relationship with the Chinese government, despite the fact that they are private companies. So we're going to continue this. We're, we've asked Andile to come back in a couple months and to make this a regular feature. We're also going to do more tech stories on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com, where we hope that you'll go to sign up both for our free newsletter and now our paid newsletter that we're offering. The paid one is a daily Monday to Friday digest of all the top China-Africa news where we're summarizing, we're digesting, we're curating and giving you some of the exclusive content that we're commissioning from people like Andile and others. Uh, this is a one-of-its-kind resource. And if you're into China-Africa relations, particularly if you do this for your job and your work, uh, $149 is really not a massive expense. So we hope that you will sign up. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe 
And uh, again, it's Cobus and I doing what we do on the show and putting it all into the newsletter and the website as well. So that'll do it for Cobus and myself. We will be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.